All right. Welcome, folks. Welcome back to Larger, Freer, More Loving. As always, I'm Matt Levine. I'm here with my brilliant friend, Dwight Lewis. And uh, today, we're mixing shit up a little bit. Uh, instead of listening to what Dwight and I have to say about everything, uh, we wanted to bring some other voices in. Uh, so we thought we'd start off by just letting uh, you two introduce yourselves. Tell us what brings you to the discussion here. Uh, Steph, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, I'm Stephanie Rivera-Berrus. I'm an assistant professor at Marquette University in the Department of Philosophy. Um, and my research focuses on philosophy of race, gender, and sexuality, primarily in the region of the Caribbean and Latin America. Um, but also doing some stuff in the U.S. context, considering the diaspora, um, and it's kind of like polyracial, polyethnic um, perspectives that that brings. Um, and what brings me to the table? Um, my 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 research is my activism. So yeah. No, that's fantastic. Uh, and your research and your activism are uh, the reason I'm a little bit less racist and a little bit less sexist than I used to be. So thank you very, very much, Steph. Power to the people, Matt. <laughs> uh, and Taina, we'll throw it over to you. Sure. Um, hi, my name is Taina Figueroa, and I am currently a PhD student in the Department of Philosophy at Emory University. Um, my work focuses on Latina feminisms and philosophy of race. Um, and I also currently work for the Office for Racial and Cultural Engagement at Emory University. I largely work with, Lat with the Latinx student population. Um, and yeah, that's me. I'm in Atlanta. No, that's awesome, and and I love that you're you, that you're working sort of in this uh, sort of strictly academic context and this applied context of of, of trying to actually make the world better, right? Because because that's that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you here, uh, both of you. Um, so in that context, Steph, uh, you just wrote and read uh, a fantastic open letter about race and racism to the Marquette University community. Uh, so I wondered if you could tell us what do you think listeners should know about that letter? Uh, what sort of responses there been to it? What's the context? Uh, tell us a little bit there, please. Uh, um, thank you. So uh, a few weeks ago, Marquette had a racial town hall, is what they called a racial justice town hall meeting, virtual, um, to respond to the BLM movement. Um, but it came on the heels of what was already seen as a kind of um, failed response on the part of the administration to really take seriously what was happening in um, Minneapolis and then subsequently throughout the United States. Um, and so uh, as a result of that, they, hold, they host the town hall, they invited me to speak. And um, I, at this point, had just grown really frustrated with the way that the university continues to handle uh, race and uh, and racial issues as being something to continuously converse about um, rather than um, an object of action and political will of putting resources in places that actually has an effect. And so uh, doing what I know how to do well and best, I wrote something um, to read and I wrote it as an open letter, which um, is also published um, through my Medium account. So if anybody wants to read it, it's out there. Read it or you can listen to it. The actual recording of the town hall has also been released and is public. So if you want to listen to it or see it, you can see what it looked like um, and the progression of the discussion. Um, but in any event, so I wrote this open letter, um, basically uh, putting the university on blast for its, its, its institutional failures to black students, to um, Latinx students, and also to um, indigenous students, as well as um, the, those uh, people in the faculty and the staff, right? And the ways we've continuously been underserved by the university. Um, so I said a lot of things that I think a lot of people were thinking, but were really scared to say. Um, and it's been received with, very good support. I actually just had a meeting today with the president and the provost of the university. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure it's time to clap yet. Um, <laughs> hey, yo, you got ears listening. I do have ears listening. Um, but most importantly, I think um, 
On the heels of that, and with the backdrop of what's been going on, our Black Student Council has been mobilizing. And so um, I've, I've had the opportunity to also uh, put pressure to ensure that the demands that those students are putting forward are the ones that are getting the most attention first and foremost. And so that's pretty much where we're at in terms of short-term goals, um, the conversations I've had with them being like, look, like these are the students that need, these are, this is the, the most vulnerable group on our campus right now, right? Um, and uh, they should not be asking or having to ask administrators that faculty not use the N-word in class. That's not something students should have to request um, or further have to remind administrators that Marquette is not a place where they feel comfortable um, recommending other students of color to come because they will not be loved or nourished, right? And these are words that they used, right? Um, at their um, demonstrations. And so it was a, a friendly reminder also to our administrators saying, look, like, we really, like, if you want to get behind this, you got to get behind them, right? Um, and we got to push their agenda for, first and foremost, um, and then we can talk about other things. So it's pretty much where it's at, um, but largely it's been very supportive. COVID makes it very difficult to assess how people feel, right? I wasn't in a room. I didn't get to see faces. I couldn't even see the face of um, the president or the provost when I was speaking. So um, I don't know what they looked like, right? Which is a shame because I, I really would have loved to have seen the kind of affective response. But overall, it's been pretty good, I think. So mm -hmm. check it out, read it, listen to it. Yeah. Um, we no, have. That, we have. Right. And that's really <laughs> here. Oh no, we have, and it's really worth really worth reading and listening to. And and I mean, so I want to ask about this a little bit more because I and others at my institution have been trying similar things and, and not actually getting as far as as you've gotten here. And I mean, I think that's particularly interesting um, given as you talk about this differential vulnerability, like you're untenured there and you're putting Marquette on blast, right? So, so I don't know, how has, that, how has that been being an untenured person in this situation? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I mean, you, right, you just said it. I am, I am untenured. I am also in a vulnerable position relative to my career um, as we are told our careers are supposed to go. Right. I, I think that that's the important part, right? We are told that our careers are supposed to look a particular way, that there's only one way to achieve some sense of accomplishment, and that it looks like a tenure track position at a particular type of institution, and that if it's not that, it's not success, right? Um, and quite frankly, I just don't buy into it. I don't, I don't buy into the idea that the reason I worked my ass off, right, all these years, um, and have dealt with the racism of our, of our discipline, and I've dealt with the... Um, the exclusions, right, that we all face and we see them, we see them in our books, we see them in our classes, right? Um, it wasn't to just sit and just bite my tongue through a tenure track position um, to just get tenure. Like I, that to me just doesn't, did not sit well with my commitments to the work I'm doing. And if so, in this moment, I was invited to do this thing um, and to say and to speak, um, I spoke, right? Um, knowing full well what the gamble was, but also very, uh, acknowledging of the fact that um, this is my, a committed philosophy of liberation and race and struggle looks like, right? So if we are scholars that say that we're going to do these things, that we are the ones who are teaching this stuff, we have to walk the walk, right? And I was presented with the opportunity to walk the walk that day, and I, and I did, right? Um, but I think it's a call to a lot of us, right, who work in this stuff, um, to really think about, right, if you're someone who works in philosophy of race in this moment, right, um, or if you similarly are a bioethicist who works on race-related issues in this moment, right, um, that our commitments be with the work that we do, right, um, rather than a commitment to what a career is supposed to look like or something like that, right, some, some mythical accomplishment, because we all know that even after 10 years, things don't get easier. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Taina, so you're also at a university, you're a grad student, you're not just a grad student, but you're also walking, working um, in a particular uh, f a faculty uh, facility within the university. Um, and you're actually trying to put some of what Steph was talking about to work with students. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so just to give uh, a little bit of an overview of where, sort of like where my office is situated, we're not 
um, a lot of schools um, have put a lot of resources towards um, diversity, equity, inclusion departments now. And we're situated a little bit differently. We are actually a part of uh, campus life in what's called um, belonging and community justice. And that is the um, Center for Women, the Office of LGBT Life, and the, the Center for Racial and Cultural Engagement, and then Social Justice Education. Wow. So we're, we are in, a, in kind of an interesting position because part of our, our mandate actually is to work with students and teach them how to, um, how to organize and how to um, respond to multiple oppressions and um, but we're also uh, we're also a part of the university, um, so there there is there does arise some tension when that um, when that organizing is then focused on uh, the institution itself, right? It's easy and and universities love it when their students are doing that work <laughs> aimed somewhere else, but then when it gets turned on the university, that's when it gets problematic. Um, but we still, um, we're still doing what we can within that space. So um, but one thing that's been really interesting since, since um, the uh, murder of George Floyd and everyone all of a sudden being aware of their racism and that racism is a thing, um, a lot of pressure has come on our office to like provide these um, hour-long trainings to fix all of the racism in their department. Which has been interesting. And uh, yeah, so so we've tried to really um, we tried to really push back and say actually um, that's not possible. And also, um, you need to be doing the work. Like the fact that you have a DNI office or um, uh, or the fact that you have a, an office for racial and cultural engagement um, doesn't mean that this is where the anti-racist work happens, right? Yeah. Actually, it needs to be happening everywhere across the entire university. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we can help you and give you some tools for that, but but also y'all need to be doing the work. Um, it's really, and, and I mean, just even in, so, so we work a lot with students. I mean, that's, uh, we, we have, um, you know, we've done, we had someone come to Emory in the spring, Heather McDonald, who is this like um, extremely racist, um, uh, like a uh, public co commentary uh, person. And um, the students were like uh, enraged. And um, so we actually offered like a series of pop-ups after that to both like help students process their feelings um, what, you know, what it meant for, in, in, for the institution. It wasn't Emory that invited them. It was like, a, one of the Emory student groups. Um, but still like, what did it mean that the university had allowed them to be there? But also like, what are ways to push back against this kind of stuff, um, within the institution? We're doing something similar now. We have reading groups both for, um, um, for black students and staff to process kind of this moment. Um, it's like a healing space. Um, we're also working with non-black um, people of color, both students and staff. Um, we're reading Ingrid Kennedy's book. Um, there's also a white fragility group uh, for, uh, for white folks, um, students and staff. And so, uh, <laughs> So, I was actually um, phrasing. I just so, so. <laughs> especially because white folks are impressively bad at talking about white fragility. It's one of the signs of their white fragility. Our <laughs> white fragility. <laughs> and I will like, and I will say that um, that and and we do it, and we do it. So like, there's a white person leading that group because actually, white folks feel a lot more comfortable talking about white fragility with other white folks. Um, and similarly, um, the other the other groups are like identity identity specific. Um, but yeah, so that's like what in this moment one of the things that we're trying to do. Not that it's just about um, reading things and discussing things, um, but we're at least trying to give students some kind of grounding so that um, so they can do better organizing on campus, right? Um, and, and there's this great piece. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot in our office, there's a piece that came out in the Chronicle, I think yesterday, um, by Mark Perry, that's talking about universities are not ready. These students have been in the streets this whole summer. They are not about statements. Yeah. 
They are not about, um, you know, uh, you know, they, they want change. They want structural change. Um, and, uh, the universities are not prepared. Like they should be scared. They should be. I'm scared. And I'm not even, I don't even have like, (laughs) like I'm on their side. Zers don't care. But yo, they don't, they don't, they don't. Putting, their parents, putting their parents on blast. Like, <laughs> I know. Like you either better get on their side, or they just gonna run you over. Mm. Like universities don't know. Well, right. So I mean, this is an interesting thing you brought up here, Taina, because uh, so all that work you're doing is fantastic, um, and we're gonna have to talk about ways in which we could potentially uh, help each other's work out here. Um, But one of the things you brought up that's really interesting to me is the complete lack of self-awareness that goes along with like, okay, we needed to have a division of diversity, equity, and inclusion because the world we live in is super fucking racist, sexist, uh, homophobic, Islamophobic, ableist, every single thing you can imagine. So why in the world would you be surprised that our university is racist and sexist and homophobic? And, and, and I mean, and the same thing goes, you know, we were talking before we got on here about philosophies about criticism. Philosophy, philosophers want to criticize everybody except themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so what in the world is going on here and what do we do about that? Hmm. Preach, preach. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what that's what we're here for. We're trying to glean from you two how to fix all the problems. Just so you know. Right. Oh, got, it, got it. And wait, how how much time do we have? Better yeah. than you. We're well within that one-hour workshop training. Yeah, <laughs> we should be able to figure this stuff out. But, <laughs> but even though that even though that sounds like a joke, seriously, both of you are on the front lines actually doing stuff um, institutionally and with students and with faculty. It's actually mind blowing what you guys are doing, um, ladies are doing. Um, I am just I am really um, I am like actually impressed um, by both of you. You can ask Matt. I even said it the first time. <laughs> the first time I read uh, Taina, you know I'm impressed by you to begin with. Um, so I was at Emory. Cup, not last year, uh, 2018 to 2019, uh, James in the James Weldon Johnston Institute. Um, and so me and Diana hung out quite a bit. Um, and you know I'm impressed by you. But then I read your website and I was impressed by you too, Steph. So I, um, I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like oh, hold on a second, what website? I don't have a website. <laughs> I read, well, I think you're. I was like, I know I read your website. <laughs> I was like, yo, am I lying? <laughs> uh, I was like, am I lying? Um, but I'm going to take us to another question because we're, we're moving on. And yeah, I mean, I just want to jump in really quick and respond to what Taina was saying. I think you're absolutely right about the fact that universities are not ready. Um, and they're not ready on multiple fronts, right? Because we are still in a COVID pandemic, right? So like, they're not ready there, right? Like they're not there. And then you have students, right? Who have been active, particularly students of color, black students, right? Um, Latinx students, um, and, and they've been locked up, right? Because of COVID, right? So like you have the same probably structure that you see at the level of the nation, just microcosms at the level of the university, right? Where the university operates as the capitalistic model thing that people are trying to like respond to and the universities are not ready for this, right? They weren't ready for COVID. They're still not ready for COVID, right? I mean, we're still having conversations about whether or not we're gonna go teach live. like. I'm sorry, what? Like, you want us to do what, right? While our cases are spiking, at least in Wisconsin. Um, Florida. And in Atlanta, right? You're in Atlanta. Atlanta. Florida, right? Like, Matt, you're the only one who's in. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody lives here. Nobody lives here. (laughs) You live in rural Western. We got it. We got it. But yeah, and so I, I think you're right. And I think that that's what makes this particular moment also really distinct from other moments that we've seen both at the level of the national political climate, but also at the level of higher education. Like, I don't think higher education has come under so much scrutiny, right? Until this pandemic hit because they, you know, they were the first ones that had to start, you know, 
classes going online, releasing students from their dorms and all of that stuff. And so they came under a lot of heat for that and they're still getting a lot of heat for that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's a, like, that's a place where we're seeing the intersection between uh, the COVID stuff and, and the activism of our students yeah. intersect, right? So, um, you know, this last month, June, um, of course, has uh, been quite a tough month, especially for, you know, um, at least Black folk. Um, but I don't think it's just been tough for Black folk. I think it's been tough for a lot of people. And Steph, in your letter, you talked particularly um, about Marquette being a Hispanic servant institution. Um, you and Taina are both. Latin American and Latin, Latin American scholars with Latinx identities. Um, and we've talked a lot on, on this podcast about race, particularly really focused uh, on the white black binary, um, which obviously misses so many communities. Um, so uh, our question is, um, what are some of the ways you think are, are think current discussions concerning COVID-19 or institutional racism needs to involve discussions of Latinx identities, disability, or other marginalized groups. So really we're like trying to trying to, to ask you to no longer look at the black and white binary. Um, Me? Like, not look at the black and white binary? <laughs> try not to, just throw that shit out. You know, America forces it on you. Um, I don't have much of a choice, yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think, one of the major obstacles with a lot of the way that higher education sets up these systems is that it doesn't show you how they're connected, right? From the perspectives of students, faculty, and staff, right? everybody, right? That um, there's a connection between um, uh, what it means to be a Black student on our campus, for instance, and what it means to be um, a Hispanic or a Latinx identified student, right? And the experiences that you have by virtue of having these identities, right? That th that marginalization, that experience of um, exclusion, right? Is part of something way more bigger and systematically structured that's aimed at ensuring that um, at least when you deal with the Hispanic serving stuff, right? That it's divorced from blackness, right? That it operates along the black white binary. And then, um, uh, as, as something that's almost like a given that you can't overcome, right? Like that's just like, that's just the way it is, right? It's just, we have the black students doing their thing, the Hispanic students doing their thing, right? Um, with a kind of complete inability to see the ways that they're intersecting and that their experiences of the university are actually much broader than just how they experience their identities as racialized peoples. That's sort of the dimension, but not the only one. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's it, it's not even so much to me. It doesn't strike me that it's so much about about, about a black white binary as it is that higher education is a business. Yeah, it's a it's a business. It's a it's a capitalistically driven model business of education, right? And in order for that system to run successfully, right, it has to do what it's doing, right? It has to pit students in these ways so that they don't necessarily realize that when they're fighting, they're actually fighting against the same thing, right? Um, or not communicating with each other about those fights, right? And so Taina, like to speak to like the work that you're doing, it's so important to get students, right? To be like, okay, how do we organize, right? Like that there is a learning to the organizing that's not just gonna happen organically from the inside of an institution that's built around profiting around education. Like that, you know, that, that that's something you have to learn to maneuver, right? Very tactically. Um, and so uh, I think that that's, I mean, that's part of the work, right? So um, I would, I mean, I'd push a further away from thinking about just race as part of the structure, but like, what is the structure of higher education right now? And um, we're not in the business of actually teaching and learning and creating learning communities. That's not actually what we're, we end up doing, right? We end up working within a different type of machine um, as we're actively trying to resist it, right? Which makes it even more complicated. Yeah. So, Taina, I have a similar question for you. Mm -hmm. um, the same as the same focus, um, which is really on our concerns with COVID, um, other marginalized identities, and disability in relationship to being a grad student. Um, yeah, uh, just how are those things, I guess, affecting um, 
yeah, grad student experience in this process. I know, I know, I know you're also doing um, and so, okay, I'm just gonna, so I'll answer, I have to think a little bit about the grad student one, but um, I, I am gonna sort of, the one thing that I think is really interesting about this moment that I really appreciate is actually, um, is that it's opened up a space for, um, uh, for uh, Latinx populations. And so for me, it's the students and staff at Emory to examine anti-Black racism specifically, yes. both within, um, within Latinx identities yes. and, and beyond. And so, um, and what that does also is just um, provide an opportunity to expose the ways in which these systems are linked. Yes. Um, and, and that, um, and that the, that thinking of Latinx um, uh, situations as, as um, somehow separate from um, actually can do a disservice to how it is that we are all linked in these structures, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But also recognizing the fact that the Latinx experience is not the Black experience, right, necessarily. Um, and, and thinking that um, particularly as, uh, as a white passing Latinx folk that you may not, um, that your experience may be very, very different from what other um, Latinx and um, Black people in general experience, right? So, um, so for me, this moment has been interesting because I've never seen um, so many, in particular, young students that are interested, Latinx students that are interested in um, exploring anti-Blackness, mm -hmm. um, but also in expanding sort of like what, what Latinx identity means right now. Um, mm -hmm. so that's been really interesting. So in terms of, um, in terms of the grad student question, um, so do you mean like um, how as a Latinx grad student, um, this gets experienced when, when the conversation is focused on the black white binary, that kind of thing, or? I, 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 whatever you want, I'm actually free. Whatever you want to agree with, I'm down for. Uh, the Latinx experience within um, being in a PWI, uh, I mean, the, the, I mean, so, I mean, my experience as, um, I think, <laughs> as many of us have experienced, um, has been difficult. Um, I do think that, like, at the graduate level, um, I do think that, uh, it, like, you're even that much more isolated um, than you are at the undergrad level. Uh, it's really hard. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's difficult, um, especially if you're working on, especially if you are simultaneously a person of color that is working on anything related to race or racism. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's really heavy. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, that's, this is going to sound really messed up what I'm going to say, but like, that's the that's the game right now. I do see a lot of, of um, grad students that are working and making demands on the university in a way actually that I haven't seen. Because a lot of times undergrads will be doing a lot of, uh, they're, they're pushing their university in different ways. Um, but oftentimes because there's so few of us at the graduate level, it's like, um, and, and you are wholly consumed with, uh, with making sure that you measure up because you've got such bad imposter syndrome, right? Like, uh, you are just trying to make it out. And, um, and so you don't have time to be trying to change policy and stuff like that. But, um, but actually, I have seen um, some really interesting organizing happening from the graduate students, um, not just in, um, like, not just in regards to the university, but also like, the grad students have been sending out every single week, like where you can be protesting, like um, and doing stuff in the community, right? That's not um, that's not just about focusing on the university. So it's, it's um, you know, I'm I'm seeing some things. I mean, what in my department even they've made this commitment that their next hire is gonna be. They had to like be very iffy about how the language was gonna be. Um, was, was gonna, uh, how they were gonna write the language, but they made a promise about hiring essentially a person of color as their next hire. Um, but, um, but also, this is gonna sound um, 
maybe I'm also just like I'm like I'm in the later state like I'm, I'm further along in my graduate career and so like I pay less and less attention to the department honestly because like when you're in it everything is so important and then you come out of it and it's like oh my god forget why do that. I care like, it's like why, why do I care exactly exactly so um so yeah but I mean I I one thing I would love to see um I do see a lot of like extra support services um you know the STEM fields are um they they are also horrible in terms of the numbers of um, like Black and Latinx students, but they, at least at Emory anyways, they have actually some more support services built into them being able to make it through graduate school um, than most of the humanities and social sciences. And so one thing that that I would love to see is, and that we're trying to work to do, is, um, is build in some more support services for Black and Latinx students that are coming in as grad students um, in the humanities, because we just don't have, um, we don't have a lot and stu and people leave are asked to leave um get failed out um you know constantly so um but they and, and yeah sorry i was just on the phone with a grad student at my university uh black female um and she's like having the hardest time she's like not she's like wants to work on something but the person that works on it won't respond to her emails he's like she's like showed up to the guy's office um but he like just doesn't want to work with her and so she's just like lost she's like should i switch school should i do this but i'm so far along um i just can't i it's like i had to just choose to work on what my advisor was working on to some extent like i wanted to work on something else in grad school and i just shifted because i was like either i shift or i like am not going to stay in um, and this is like the, the thing that a lot of, just like you're saying, a lot of students are, are forced to do, like either shift to something that is kind of white or, um, or drop, or drop the F or drop out, you know, uh, which is so sad. So or can make people money, right? Because I mean, that's that. I mean, this seems to me to go back to Steph's point about capitalism here, right? I mean, I think you end up with, with more support for underrepresented scholars in STEM because administrators see money coming out of the STEM fields. Yeah. And right. they, don't, they don't give a shit about supporting people in the humanities and the social sciences if it's just about justice. They, they, don't, they, don't care. <laughs> they don't care about justice. What does justice do to my fucking bottom line, right? They say, which amazingly it does, but that's a, another point. One random thing I'm gonna bring up, uh, just because it made me think about it and I think it needs to be said, um, in relationship to what Taina was saying, also with these groups coming together, is right now, you know, the international students are really, grad students are really in a tough spot with the F1 visa, um, right? If you're not doing in-person classes, then they will take your visa. This is just, um, send you home, which is just incredible. Um, and I know here um, at Penn State, a lot of students are already trying to get together and talk to their departments about having reading group in-person classes um, and so, yeah, it's like, it's sad that it, it seems to be that the students keep, just like you're saying, Diana, the students keep having to do this work to like give the university ways to not get them kicked out of the country. It's, um, and it's incredible that this is even a, like, who comes up with this? <laughs> I'm so, it's like, this is making so much, like, everyone knows that the universities are going to do something to work around this but it's just making more work for everyone. Like I just have no clue. And I'm really actually terrified of what is gonna happen with the undergrad students, right? The grad students, they will come up with reading, reading groups that seem in person, mm -hmm. but the undergrads are the ones who, if you have an F1 visa, that I would be like, what do you do? You know, um, you bring all those students back on campus, how do you fake undergrad classes? Um, like, well, and the thing that's interesting is that because I, I was just talking, I was actually this afternoon, um, one of the students in the groups that I was doing is um, essentially, this is the thing that's interesting is like, this, this affects essentially, quote unquote, Americans in the sense that, um, you know, the student has been in this, you know, I have students who have been in the country since they were like four, right, but because of uh, 
because of how immigration works, they have not ever been able to get a green card. So technically they are in school on an F1 visa, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, now they risk being sent back to a country that they haven't been in since they were four years old, which is ridiculous. Um, like it's, it's just, uh, I mean. Where are we at? Where are we at? 2020 guys, it's 2020. <laughs> it's, <laughs> no, just. Put it back in the box. I don't want it. Dad, Dad, I don't want it. I agree. It's like so heartbreaking. Like I, I just like someone who writes this. It's like, like what type of heart do you have to have? Like I'm sorry. I just like don't understand. Um, but that's. I mean, that's how you know that 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 racism is alive and thriving because it doesn't even make financial sense. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. No, it's just, it's a very clear uh, racial political statement. That's because that's all it does. And it's a scare tactic on top of everything else, right? As if we needed more, right? Um, yeah. Well, so this is interesting here. So, so our, our conversation here seems to be connecting to, you know, <laughs> what goes on at the university is about what's happening in the community, what's happening in, in, in our larger contexts here. Um, so we know that you, Steph, in particular, live in Milwaukee, which comes up in my work as the single most segregated city in the United States. Hold your book um, up, hold your book up, hold right. your book up. <laughs> <laughs> so you're on the ground there, though. So yeah. where do yeah. you see Milwaukee at in relation to these problems of racism and oppression of other marginalized groups that we're talking oh. about here? Which no. I know, sorry, uh, you got three hours for that question? So yeah, Milwaukee is um, voted or has been, not voted, it's been identified as the most segregated city in the United States. I think it's important to note that Minneapolis was the second is the second right mm -hmm. to give context to the fact that some of the most segregated cities in this country are in the midwest right um they're not on the coast uh and they're so therefore the the attention that they get right um just generally speaking is already skewed in a kind of narrative about the midwest not being you know where the action of the united states is or something like that um uh so on the so what's happening what was your question like what's happening on the ground or like how do i yeah so i mean we're talking about all of these different issues here about race and uh, right. ability and and, and right, different right, right, marginalizations right. coming into coming into the university so now how do you see what's going on in the university connecting up with what's going on in milwaukee generally well, my university's not doing much. Um, <laughs> frank about that one. Um, otherwise, an open letter would have been unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and I, but I think this is this is part and parcel also very um, what's the word like uh, descriptive of what at least what we're seeing on the ground here in Milwaukee, which is that your the institutions that people presume would be at the forefronts of these things, right? Whether it be nonprofit institutions, public institutions of higher education, right? So your local UW system, or even, you know, your Jesuit schools, right? Or something like that, um, that people would have presumed would have been participating and are super active, right? Have been largely silent and not present. Now, um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that even because those organizations here, at least, right, in Milwaukee, um, run on uh, kind of like business profit driven models of certain things. And so the extent to the impact they can have is already skewed by who the donors are, where the money's coming from, right? And so there's a, there's a question about resources, right? Yeah. And where resources can get allocated in order for a change to, to happen. And so most of those organizations have not been on the forefront of this precisely because people feel like they've been failed by them, right? It's like, those, these are precisely the organizations that people would look to for support and they're not seeing it right it's like where where you know and even your local political officials right the ones that are really really localized right your aldermans and um right our representatives 
of different sorts have been nowhere to be found, right? Um, as part of this conversation. So I think the response that we're seeing on the ground is actually a response to those, right? Being like, even those systems have failed us, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you know, uh, uh, schools have failed us, right? Um, and uh, our nonprofits are failing us, right? Um, and, and, and things are not looking like they're getting better quickly, right? The situation with the visa, right? COVID um, and just our all right, like, you know, national situation um, isn't making it any easier. So I think that that's one of the things you're seeing here, at least. I don't know how that translates to other locations. Um, and so it has this very localized, organic kind of um, structuring too, that in all honesty, I don't, it's not clear to me just yet how seriously um, political officials and institutions take this, right? And like, to your point earlier, Diana, I don't think they're ready. <laughs> I don't think they're ready. And, and so, and I think COVID to come back, right, at least in Milwaukee, COVID has followed the hyper segregation of the city. The biggest hotspots we saw at the beginning were on the north side of the city um, and claims an inordinate amount of black elder uh, men, right? Those are those are the people we lost. Um, we lost elders, and then and then you see the spread start to just just mimic the segregation. And now the hotspots are on the south side of the city, which is predominantly Mexican and Puerto Rican, given the migratory histories of Milwaukee. Um, and the spikes are there, but they're localized sparks, like uh, right. And so. Um, uh, these are communities that now all of a sudden, right, are being failed in so many other ways, right, that people are also actively responding to with respect to access to testing, right, with respect to um, uh, access to healthcare resources if you do get ill, right, things of that sort have be, are also part of the backdrop that I think people are responding to because people feel very failed, yeah. right, very, very failed in the middle of, of this crisis and failed on top of the fact that we are a very poor city, uh, hyper-segregated on top of that, right? And so anything that happens here mimics that, right? It tracks that. Um, but the movement, the, the movement of resistance is one that seems to be largely responding to those failures, right? And so attempts being made to bridge, right? To, to bridge what's going on on the north side with the south side, right? Being like, look, like we're fighting very similar battles here, right? We just have to connect the dots. Like we just have to be moving through each other's spaces more, right? Um, and actually engaging in those practices. Um, but that's very difficult to do for a lot of people who've been working within these institutions that have organizational structures that they're just not, you know, they're like, but this isn't how we've done it in the past or something like that, right? Um, but, you know, it, it's 2020, so like. <laughs> We got, we got a, who knows? <laughs> who knows what next week will look like at this rate? But I, I'd say that that's what um, I've witnessed, right, um, from the ground. Um, and because of the segregation, the uphill battle of um, Taino, what you were talking about earlier, the work of anti-blackness within our own communities, right? So what does it mean to do anti-blackness, work of anti-blackness um, in Latinx communities, right? And here that has a very particular, um, what's the word, pinte, like a very particular color. Um, because uh, you have migratory tensions between already racialized groups, right? Puerto Ricans and Mexicans here, mm -hmm. um, which already have racial diversity to begin with. Yeah. And then that's segregated out from your black, your black population in the North, which also includes Afro-Puerto Ricans. So you have these like, you know, these tensions already here. Um, and so the work of doing, you know, that type of work is even more complicated, right? Yeah. By these kinds of divisions. But not impossible, not impossible. I've witnessed, I witnessed some beautiful things last night. So I, 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 I walk, I st I'm still walking with a little bit of hope about what, what we can do here. But um, I think there's, uh, the movement here is just like, we need more national attention. We need people paying attention to Milwaukee, right? Um, and putting pressure on Milwaukee to respond. Um, and I think that that's part of what the activism is trying to do, is trying to put a spotlight on this city being like, look, like, us in Minneapolis, like, not much of a difference, right? Yeah. So talking about responding, Taina, we're gonna ask you a similar question. Um, so, uh, of course, I know that you're in Atlanta, um, and during this past month, we know that Mayor Keisha Bottoms has taken some hits from the Black and Latinx community. Yeah, I'm laughing a little bit because she's taking some real good hits. Um, so, oh, for real. so we're intrigued to hear how you think she has responded and how her response has been received 
by marginalized members of the Atlanta community? So, um, in thinking about this question, I feel, so, I feel wholly uh, inadequate to, <laughs> to, uh, I mean, Atlanta's huge, and so there's, <laughs> there's, so, there's, there's so much going on, um, but to, just to um, to to explain a little bit about what um, how do you um, think she is responding? Let's let's change it to that. Well, okay, so so um, so obviously there have been BLM protests like for the past month, and um, and then in the middle of in the midst of this, Rayshard Brooks was killed at a Wendy's here in Atlanta, and what happened was the um, the cops basically staged a sick out. So they were, because the, um, the officer who shot him was, was charged with felony murder, um, the cops um, in Atlanta staged a, a sick out. So they were um, basically calling out sick and not showing up to work. So um, I got a little bit of clarification on this, but um, so the Atlanta Police Foundation, which you know, like every, every major city, um, they have this police foundation basically gave them um uh gave them a 500 gave them 500 gave police 500 um so that to avoid this sick out and that kind of thing so the police chief resigned pretty quickly after rayshard brooks was shot but um <clears throat> but uh you know Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms was the person who um, brought the National Guard out to uh, the BLM protest. So, um, and she has overseen the, um, um, yeah, like the, what has been happening with the police here. So, um, me personally, I'm not a fan, um, but. <laughs> Um, you know, it's so that, I mean, Atlanta is just really complicated, right? Because it's, it is, um, like the, one of the major, uh, centers of the civil rights movement. And so you have, um, people who have doing, who have been doing political work in a very particular way for the past 30, 40 years, um, simultaneously that 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 it's wrapped up with this with conversations about respectability and and being recognized and legible in particular ways um but then you got a lot of young people who are just like done um oh you spot on though yeah. right now preaching keep preaching it's not like they don't they don't they don't and i mean and i even <laughs> I even see this actually, it's really interesting. I even see this in, for example, um, and this is to bring it back to actually even the question about like how, um, sorry to take the, the focus off of Atlanta, but um, to bring it back to how graduate students are responding, um, there, I'm, so like at all levels, the, the sort of old guard and the respectability politics that, that is engaged in by senior scholars, by um, and, and just, and by, you know, like, abuela, you know, on the block, whatever, like young folks are done with it. And, um, like they want to show up and, and in their, in their full personhood, you know what I mean? Like, um, like in their full blackness in their full Latinidad and be, and be who they want to be and demand for things to be different. And, um, and so I, the, the, what I'm thinking about right now is even, even at our school, there's been some real tension in the Mellon, in the, um, the Mellon undergrad program, because it's all, it's, it's largely like, these are black and Latinx students who are really, really brilliant, smart. Um, but the, the training for the program, it's, it's, they are, they can't stand it. Um, because it's full of all these respectability politics stuff where you're talking about how it is that you should present physically when you're, yeah. um, you know, like when you're in, in a zoom, in a zoom meeting with only other students. Um, so, you know, students are, I mean, young folks at all levels everywhere, whether it's on the block or it's in, uh, Emory's halls are just like done with, with compromises and statements and, um, 
Yeah. So, so I think that you're seeing that play out in the streets here in Atlanta. Like, um, young folks are 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 done with it. Like, they're done. They're done with police. Like, they want abolition. Like, so no questions. It's just like. So I have a question then for both you and Steph. Um, if you had a few words to give a student now. Um, a marginalized, yeah, I'm, I'm going real off cuff right here. <laughs> no, like right now, it's like, that's what I would, if I was a student and I was listening to this, it's like, all right, so we, you've, you've told me that this thing is hurting. We're hurting at the university level. We're hurting at the city level. We already know we're hurting at the state and the global level. Um, what are like, through, like anything you want to say, positive, negative, like things to look out for, just a few things of encouragement or of like advice for young students that are trying to exist in like PWIs, um, in diversities, also in, like in in yeah, yeah in cities that they're like this university is also not like the city, but the city isn't doing anything different in relationship to what the university is. They're both they're both like drenched in in institutional racism, right? Um, yeah, I was going to ask Stephanie, actually, I mean, because one of the things that, that students have done at Emory here is they, they're, they're calling for the defunding of the Emory PD. Oh. Um, is that, are they doing that similarly? At yeah, there's a conversation about MUPD um, and its history because we actually, MUPD is, is very um, young. Uh, and was, in order for it to exist, required the rearrangement of our local laws. Which, what? uh huh, correct. <laughs> Dwight, your face. <laughs> I'm so confused about this, and I'm also confused what a police foundation is. It's like, <laughs> like what? It, like it, this? This sounds like a. This sounds the police foundation sounds like a some type of clan, some group, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Eerily reminiscent, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we, yeah, so they had to, the, and the president, a current president, um, uh, that was part of his kind of starting, you know, when he started MRCAD was the creation of MUPD. We didn't used to have a police force. It was just a safety, you know, uh, unarmed uh, uh, participant, you know, having people on campus. Um, but um, it's important to keep in mind that because we're a predominantly white institution, um, and we are um, an extremely expensive institution to attend, right? Um, it seems like a lot of the reasons that MUPD was created was to assuage white fears of going to a school in uh, an urban uh, space um, that was seen as already criminal, which of course we know means black in this context. And so um, students are calling for a conversation about MUPD. Unfortunately, we don't have access to the budget. We don't really know how they're funded. Um, we just know what they can do. And that's, that in and of itself is a problem, right? Because they can, uh, they, they basically function as a, an extension of the Milwaukee Police Department. So it, it, we just have, they just happen to be on campus. Um, so they're, they're a branch of that, um, or they operate as, as such, but we don't, it's not clear to us how they're funded and where the money's coming from. And so that's part of an ongoing conversation the students are trying to have. Um, we're actually meeting with the chief um, of MUPD next week um, to, to begin those conversations. On top of that, um, we have a demonstration policy on campus that requires students to get permits in order to demonstrate. And obviously failure to have a permit is a violation of the law and MUPD can come um, and um, intervene should they deem that it, you know, it's so right by virtue of the rights that they have as police. And so um, that further complicates things, right? From the, from the student perspective. Um, and so, wow. So basically what that means is that there's also like specific areas on campus they can congregate that are okay and some that aren't, right? Um, but again, right? Like if you deviate from that, you're, you're essentially engaging in what is criminal activity, right? And can be arrested for and um, yeah. That's ridiculousness, and I mean, and that's, yes. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just, and I mean, unfortunately, that's not dissimilar to the situation we have here, right? So, so SUNY Potsdam is a part of the SUNY system, 
So our right. university police are officially state troopers. They're right? state troopers. So they're state troopers. Yeah, out state schools. Right? So, so we, we employ state troopers on our campus, but we have, we have a mental health crisis on our campus where we have seven times the national average of mental health hospitalizations and suicide attempts at our school, but we can't find money to get more mental health professionals on campus. Right, but we're willing to pay. But we're willing to pay state troopers. Oh, I don't know if like in thinking about your question, Dwight, about like what to tell students, this is actually one thing that I think, um, and I don't know, I don't know how it, because, I, because I'm at a PWI, I don't know how it works with like the SUNY system, but with PWIs, they don't have to show their, they don't have to show anything about any money. And this is the thing that I think one thing that actually would be really, really helpful for students to demand is show us open your books, be transparent, right? Where is the money coming from? Where is it going? Um, even in thinking about salaries, right? Like salaries for uh, uh, white versus non-white staff, faculty, all that kind of stuff. Um, if, if PWIs really want to like make their statements, then, then demand that they show you the books. Right, at least. At least, at the very least. Yeah, but yeah, no, I mean, so we don't, when you don't have access to even like a schema of that, right, when you're at these institutions, because public institutions, you get a little bit of a flavor for what's going on. Maybe not, obviously not the full picture ever, but you have a better sense, mm -hmm. but these other types of institutions, you don't. Mm -hmm. And so you just know that magically there's an MUPD or, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a police department on campus, but oh, you have no idea, right, how money is getting funneled and moved. And I mean, I think the question of salaries is also, right, like really on point. Um, and I wonder what students, because I think students perceive the experience differently, right? Because they're sold a different narrative mm -hmm. of what the university is. And so I don't think even, even the white students, right? I don't think it's in their minds to be thinking mm -hmm. about this because they've been sold a different story mm -hmm. and they believe it. Why wouldn't they believe it, right? Um, uh, about how the institutions work. And so they wouldn't even think to ask, like open the books. Because right. I think they might think the books are open or more accessible than they really are, right? Until something happens and they're like, oh, wait, hold on, we don't know, right? And you're like, yeah, dude, like, no, we don't. Um, so, uh, yeah, opening, open the books. That's open a great, the the, open the books. Yeah, <laughs> open the books. Don't tell us. Open the books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the philosophers tell you to open the books. <laughs> <Open the book. laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would also add, like, what to tell students right now. Um, Never stop asking why. Like never settle for an explanation, never, ever. Even if it's one that aligns with your beliefs or interests about the world, never settle for an explanation without a why. And if that why isn't clear, like keep digging. Um, but yeah, we can't, we can't, yeah. No, don't, do not be complacent with information because we're, we don't live in a time where information, um, if ever, right, if information was ever neutral, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. Do not be complacent with um, information and knowledge in general, right? Continuously ask why. Why do things look the way they do? Why do people say the things they do, right? Why would a president do X, even if it aligns with what you need, right? Like ask questions about, you know, whose interests are being served here, right? Broader questions and keep asking those questions because I think that's where the fire is for a lot of these kids where they're fed up, right? They're just like, nah, man, like this is enough. Like, not, 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 we can't, we can't keep moving and working with what we got. It's just not working. And they see it and they feel it. Right. Um, and I think for us as educators or people who work in educational spaces, right, the work is to be like, no, you're right. Um, let's talk about, let's get some language on there to help you. Like, let's, let's, let's get, let's get you moving. Right. Like, how can we get, how can we support you in, in accomplishing whatever it, you know, goals we, you might have. Right. Um, so well, that's good. That's a good word for both of you. That's a good word. Um, so I um, am really interested in 
things that just have to do with academia. <laughs> what are you going to ask, Dwayne? I really just don't care about it that much. Really? Um, yeah, I, just don't. Uh, I care about changing it, but I don't care about the, the institution. The thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like at all. Um, so I'm going to ask you both another question, more of a fun question here. Um, so we know that both of you enjoy dancing. So what is your favorite genre to dance in? And who is your go-to artist or song right now? You guys didn't even have a chance to think about it. Your go-to artist or song right now? Like what is, you know, when you... Oh, hold on. Perate, perate, perate. I gotta look it up because I'm gonna forget the name. Um, yeah, yeah. We gotta know. We have to know. I mean, I'm. I feel very basic. Um, in the sense that, um, like, <laughs> so my favorite genre to listen to is yes, I think it's on. But um, really, <laughs> it is. It is, and it's a guilty pleasure. And it's not guilt, y'all. It's great. It's great. <laughs> no. Um, so, but the, but the song that I've been listening to, cause I've been kind of like in this, like, so I guess reggaeton, but also some trap and español, like, um, but I have really been, I just really, I just really like Bad Bunny. I'm sorry. I know no. that there's, no. there's problems there, but I just, I really like Bad Bunny. And the song that I've been listening to is Bendiciones, which is not totally a dancing song, but it's just, it ha it's kind of like my mood at this moment. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about blessings basically, and mm -hmm. even recognizing all the shit that is happening at this moment. But, um, but blessings for the world. So, hey, hey, hey! <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> you know, if academia, if we could sell academia like this, I think we oh get my so many people. Oh my god! Oh, it is. Like this. This is a new academia. These all this is what academia oh, looks like now. Yo, no, in 30 years, it's a long time. I'm sorry. I know. Like coming in like this, shoot. And if they ain't, I ain't done nothing, right? Really? I don't know. We haven't even. <laughs> okay, Stephanie, Stephanie, what's yours? What's my so wait? So the question was, what am I listening to? That was the, the oh, song. The... What is your favorite genre? And then who is your what song are you listening to? Right I don't have so the favorite genre is kind of hard, but um, lately, um, <laughs> lately, uh, it's I mean, reggaeton's always playing because that's just like that's just that's the anthem the soundtrack of life. Yeah, yeah, all the way, <laughs> all the way, absolutely. Um, but uh, no, I've been listening to a lot of salsa, unsurprisingly. I know. Surprise, surprise, guys. Um, but uh, from the 60s. And so there's a there's an album called Justicia. Um, and so there's two albums. And I highly recommend y'all check them out, regardless, even if you don't understand the lyrics. But um, uh, so Justicia. And there's a, a live recording um, from Sing Sing. Um, of um, it's Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Palmieri live at Sing Sing, Eddie Palmieri live at Sing Sing. Um, phenomenal albums, um, salsa albums, but they're uh, they're doing they're doing the bridge work, right? They're they're Puerto Ricans doing mm. doing bridge revolutionary work through their music. Um, I mean, recorded live at Sing Sing, right? Um, and uh, and connecting black and brown struggles. Um, so I've been, that's gotten a lot of a lot of play um, lately, uh, especially as like, you know, one might be in marches inside of a car or something like that. Like, that, that, that may be playing in the background. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I would say those two albums in particular. How's, how's your salsa? Justicia, what was the other one? Uh, live at Sing Sing, Eddie Palmieri. Live oh, they're, they're, okay, they're two different albums. Yes. Si, si. How's your salsa is the question. The, the one I eat or the one I dance? Because <laughs> both are pretty killer. I'm not, I'm so oh. okay. 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 Yo, we gonna have to test this at some point. <laughs> Florida, yo, we, we can... Listen, when Florida is not in the middle of a COVID outbreak, and we're <laughs> in cases, I would be more than happy. <laughs> Y'all come through. You know, the, I saw I saw a, a a graphic the other day of like um, COVID, like where you're most at risk and where you're least at risk, and the most at risk was the nightclub. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. I don't even know if I would like my body would know what to do at this point. It's been so long since I've been in a, such a public space. Yeah, I know. No. Yeah. And end of March and early April, Dwight and I were talking. We're gonna pretend to come up with some reason to go to the Pacific APA so we can all get together in Portland and hang out in Portland in uh, in March and April of 2020. No. Yo, if we're, if it's open, I'm I'm down for all of them. I'm I'm I may. Yeah. No. Yeah. Y'all come to Milwaukee. Not, 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 I am not going to Milwaukee. I'll just say that right there. I'm sorry, yeah. but. Talking about the APAs. <laughs> I was just throwing Milwaukee out there, but Taina, 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 Taina. Nos vemos en Puerto Rico entonces. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Yo, uh, that's what I was saying. Go to Puerto Rico. That's what I was saying. Yes. We've been. But we are supposed to go to Puerto Rico. I know. That's what I was saying. We've been. Waiting. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. I have to finish my fucking dissertation. <laughs> details. Details. <laughs> Finer. No. Next okay. summer, Puerto Rico trip. It's just a salsa trip. Like that's it. We're yeah. just places that go salsa dancing. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Right now. Now, we gotta take her to dance reggaeton. Like we gotta, we gotta yeah. take reggaeton first, yeah. and then we'll do salsa later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't leave me out. Y'all cut me what? out. Of reggaeton on real quick. <laughs> cut me out of reggaeton real quick. Dude, you see all this? You see all this melanin? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, oh, yeah. All right. Thank you for being here. Thank really you. Thanks so You're much. You're both awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Dwight, I'm sure you'll decide soon enough that you shouldn't have me as a partner on this podcast. Uh, Steph and Tyena got much more interesting things to say. <laughs> no way. There's no way. Yo. No. Thanks a lot for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. For having us. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you, Steph.